Maybeth Gassman is the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Endowed Chair, a distinguished professor and associate dean for research at Rutgers University. Her areas of expertise include US history, HBCUs, racism, philanthropy, and leadership. She is the author or editor of 30 books, including Envisaging Black Colleges, Educating a Diverse Nation, Making Black Scientists, and Doing the Right Thing, How to End Systemic Racism in Faculty Hiring. Dr. Mary Beth Gassman, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. It's great to be here. So you're just coming out with your book, Doing the Right Thing, How Colleges and Universities Can Undo Systemic Racism and Faculty Hiring. And at the beginning, you, you outlined the case for it and just describe why this is such an urgent need. If you could read from a little bit from the beginning. So what I want to read is from the first chapter, and it's called Let's Lay the Cards on the Table. So I start off with a quote from a university provost who says, a lot of these myths that are out there, oh, we don't have the pipeline or we can't get them to move to our town or the research areas don't match up with what we are looking for. All of these myths are just created to sustain the situation that we have. The key is to recognize that falling back on all of these old myths is a barrier to making progress. And then I'll read a little bit more of my own words. Colleges and universities in the United States are admired around the world for their research, innovation, and academic excellence. In recent years, many institutions of higher education have even been lauded for their increased diversity in enrollment at the undergraduate level. To the dismay of some who believe diversity waters down institutional quality and academic excellence, between 1975 and 2016, the population of college undergraduates changed significantly with increases across most racial and ethnic groups. Hispanic student enrollment has increased from 4% to 18%, Black student enrollment from 10% to 14%, Asian American and Pacific Islander enrollment from 2 to 7%, and Native American enrollment from 0.7% to 0.8%. At some of the nation's most selective institutions, the percentage of undergraduate students of color has increased substantially and high standards of quality have remained intact. For example, as, I'm, as I was writing my book, Columbia University, New York University, and Stanford University have student bodies that consist of 66% students of color. And even more impressive, UCLA and UC Berkeley boast undergraduate populations that are 73% students of color. And then in the middle of the country, both Northwestern and the University of Chicago have student bodies consisting of nearly 55% students of color. Racial and ethnic diversification has advanced in undergraduate student populations across the country and even at the nation's most prestigious institutions. Yet, these colleges and universities, which boldly proclaim a dedication to overall diversity and excellence in their public statements, strategic plans, and on their websites, fail at achieving diversity and thus excellence among their faculty. Of all full-time tenure-track and tenured faculty in degree-granting post-secondary institutions in 2017, 41% were white men, 35% were white women, 6% Asian, Asian American Pacific Islander men, 5% Asian American and Pacific Islander women, and 3% each 
were Black men, Black women, Hispanic men, and Hispanic women. Those who were American Indian or Alaska Native and those who were of two or more races each made up 1% or less of the full-time faculty. At the same time that colleges and universities are criticized by some for sacrificing excellence for the sake of diversity across their various, the various aspects of their institutions, in reality, they are not aggressively pursuing racial and ethnic diversity among their faculty, nor are these idea, ideas at the core of their definitions or understanding of excellence. Yes, colleges and universities call for inclusive excellence, but typically this phrase is in place to assure critics that the only way that diversity will be pursued is if that diversity adheres to the criteria and pedigree deemed acceptable by those in power, namely whites. Colleges and universities, as well as their faculty that purport to be the best in the world, that brag about their US News and World Report rankings, and that hold fast to the belief that they truly want racial and ethnic diversity across all aspects of the academy, must follow through on their promises. To date, they have not been genuine in terms of diversifying the faculty and eliminating the idea that whiteness means excellence. Individuals from all racial and ethnic backgrounds are essential to creating knowledge and should have the opportunity to do so in an environment that appreciates, affirms, and supports them. And one of the things that I do in this chapter is I ask some questions that I think are, are important for framing what we're going to talk about today. And that is, what would happen if the very definition of excellence were broadened to be more inclusive? What if universities reconceive their notions of academic excellence to have meaning only if racial and ethnic diversity are centered in these definitions? What would happen if faculties use the power that is linked to their shared governance voice, their contributions to university decision making, to foster justice and equity with regard to their ranks? What would result if faculties realize that diversifying their ranks is their responsibility and that not doing so is evidence that they don't support and are intellectually lazy about issues of equity? And how would the academy change if faculties realized, acknowledged, and grappled with the role that they play in upholding systemic racism in the academy and especially within the faculty hiring process? These questions and more are at the center of my evidence and my arguments in my book, and I aim to convince readers that faculties have the power to change this system that privileges whiteness and rewards measures of excellence rooted in systemic racism. You clearly outline it. That's from the, the academic level, and you've observed it. You've really, I, I, for those who don't know, we should say that uh, you're the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Endowed Chair in Education, uh, the Executive Director of the uh, Rutgers Center for Minority Serving Institutions. So you really know what you're talking about. You know, you just uh, described it from an academic viewpoint, but what are your personal reasons for writing this book? And just more broadly, you know, what... Um, set you off on your journey to, to fight for social justice? So my reasons for writing the book are kind of, they're interesting. And I actually write fairly in depth, a whole section called the origin of an idea about why I wrote this book, because I'll tell you a little bit about it. I had been invited to the uh, New York Times Higher Education Forum, which 
takes place every year in New York and there's all kinds of interesting folks who come and I was on stage with of all people Nicole Hannah Jones who you know is famed for the 1619 project but this is before she you know coordinated that project and so I was on stage with her talking about historically black colleges with another individual and she just out of the blue asked me a question she said we were talking about faculty and she she said why aren't there more faculty of color at majority white institutions, which was not what I was there to talk about. And I just looked at her and I said, because we don't want them. We, if we wanted them, we would do everything possible to have a diverse faculty, but we don't. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I can give you many examples. I've been, you know, I've worked at majority institutions my entire career. And I can tell you examples of the ways that we specifically make sure that we don't have a diverse faculty. And, and you know, one of the biggest ones is that we tend to privilege two things above all else when choosing faculty. We look at who their advisor is and we look at where they went to school. And we look at those things over their actual accomplishments and productivity. And what's interesting is that the reason why we look at those things is because we assume that if they have a certain advisor and they went to a certain school that they're going to be successful. That doesn't make any sense for people who do research for a living. It doesn't make any sense, right? But we do that. And then another thing we do is we tend to make exceptions for whites, but we don't make those same exceptions for people of color. We tend to come up with all kinds of reasons why we shouldn't hire people, even though we say we're committed. So I had this conversation in public in front of all kinds of people. And then afterward, a reporter came up to me and they were from the Heckinger Report and they asked if, they, if I would write an, an op-ed for them. So I did. And that got a little traction, but then the Washington Post reached out and asked if they could republish the article. It went viral like crazy. I think today I've received like 7,000 emails from people all across the country, mainly people, a good 5,000 of those were from people of color who were trying to get faculty jobs and had been trying for years and couldn't get them. All of those emails made me wanna write this book. My answer to Nicole Hannah-Jones was one of what I had seen and experienced as a faculty member, but I didn't have any research. I just had what I'd seen and experienced. So the book, I ended up doing extensive research, both qualitative and quantitative research to really demonstrate what is going on in faculty hiring and how systemic racism permeates faculty hiring. And so I wanted to say that. And then the other thing I'll say is that for me, I became, you know, I became interested in issues of race and equity and justice, mainly because I grew up in a, you know, a community that was very, very rural and I had no exposure to really anyone aside from whites and, and some Native Americans. And I felt very cheated by my educational system. I grew up very, very poor, but, but I felt cheated because I was not I was not given an opportunity to learn about anything other than white folks, right? And so that's how I became a historian and very, became very, very interested in populations, especially African-Americans, but by and large other populations as well. 
And I just, I realized early on that in order to make change, you need everybody involved. It can't just be people of color changing systems that were created to oppress them. It needs to, it needs to be all of us involved. And so that's, that's kind of how I got interested. And this book came about because I'll just be honest with you. I was mad as hell. I was just mad as hell at the, about the things that I had seen happening in the academy. And I just felt like it needed, somebody needed to pull back a curtain and, and see what was actually going on. So that, that's one of the reasons why I did it. And Princeton University Press was interested and thankfully has been wonderful about publishing this. The people that we looked up to, the role models, the people who are guiding us, to, apart from our own parents, teachers, it has a huge ripple. It's not just giving opportunities to those teachers. In a way, it was kind of counterintuitive because I wasn't sure if going to a minority uh, serving institution or an HBCU, would that offer more opportunities. But I think in your research, you unravel that those role models, having this great well of support really makes a difference in in outcomes and success levels. So tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. So just so that listeners understand the doing the right thing book is about majority institutions, but most of my work is about minority serving institutions. And so there are two books that I have written that talk about exactly what you're, what you're saying. And I, I wrote a book with Cliff Conrad called Educating a Diverse Nation and another book with Tai Huynh called Making Black Scientists. Both of those are um, published by Harvard University Press and are books that capitalize on really large qualitative studies with thousands of interviews. And one of the things that we found in work with Black colleges and also other types of minority serving institutions is that having people who look like you in the classroom makes a substantial difference. It makes a difference racially and it makes a difference in terms of gender. So for example, for women, it is incredibly powerful to have people who are women, and especially if you, let's say you're a Black woman, to have a Black woman teaching you is incredibly powerful because it provides a role model and example right there in real time. And, you know, there's there's sort of this saying at Black colleges about you can't, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And Black colleges allow you to be what you want to be because they have role models all around them. There's a professor at Vanderbilt named Ebony McGee, who does really wonderful work related to role models in the sciences for Black women and for African Americans in particular, and how influential having a role model is. And I sort of build on that work in in my work as well. It's just the impact is substantial. And I think what happens is sometimes white folks don't get it because they literally have been surrounded by examples their whole life of people who are highly successful, who look like them, and who are held up as role models. Meanwhile, you have people of color who, you know, a lot of people of color are lucky to have a person of color or someone of their own race teaching them through their entire uh, academic trajectory, all the way into college. Sometimes people never get that. And Imagine what that would feel like. You know, it's deeply troubling that sometimes people can't understand that. Sometimes we forget. I mean, I'm a person of color. I'm Asian American, Eurasian, and I've always lived in countries where I'm an extreme minority. I don't think about it, but 
it just goes it's at a subliminal level and it's always there and and sometimes you become you know stronger and forced through it but you don't realize how much that is imprinted on you yes yeah absolutely and i i think that i think that younger people are realizing it and speaking up now and asking for what they need in in greater numbers which i think is important i think you have to in order to get the most out of your learning experience you have to ask for what you need and you know one of the reasons why we have like for example we have Africana studies or Latino studies or LGBTQ studies is because students during like the 1960s, late 1950s, 1960s, early 1970s, they fought for those things. They asked for those things. And when they didn't, weren't given the answer immediately, they fought for those things. And so a lot of times students, their voices can really make a difference in who's teaching and who is, and, the, and what we're learning and what we're learning. As a student of color that goes to a PWI, a lot of us do notice that a lot of the professors and faculty are white people. And when our schools try to include more people that look like us, like you said, it is very, like, it makes us very happy. How can a school avoid making it appear like they only focus on seemingly increasing diversity? Because a lot of my friends who are also people of color always say, well, they only increase student body or even like increase faculty of color, but are they really doing it because they care or are they doing it to make it appear that they are diverse? I would say it's probably depends on the situation. I will say that Colleges and universities are under a lot of pressure to diversify right now to a greater extent. I do think that there are pockets of deep care on college and university campuses. That doesn't mean that everybody cares. You know, I do think that there are pockets of deep care. I will also say, I realize that it would be great. It would be an optimal situation that people actually cared about this. And that's why the diversity happened. But that may not be the case. And if you can get the diversity to happen, you can change the system. So sometimes the reason we got to kind of be like, okay, we're going to just deal with it. And then we take the results, right? So, so sometimes you have to pressure people in order to make change. And like, I'll give you an example of something. Recently, I was talking with a university and, and they were talking about how their students came to the faculty and said, we need classes that address more issues that are important to us and, and address um, social justice issues or equity issues. And you're not giving us that. And at first the faculty were like, well, we're the faculty, we decide. For centuries, that's how it's been. Faculty have made all the decisions about what gets taught. But I think that there are more and more, especially younger faculty, faculty of color, I would say younger faculty in general, and I would also say some of the more, you know, long-term faculty have changed their minds and have realized that they have to keep up with what's going on and that they have to, you know, be responsive. Yes, it's important to teach classics, but it's also important to bring in more voices. That's essential. 
I do think that that sometimes the reasons are not the greatest, but if you can get the diversity, it will change things, right? And I can can I just read you kind of a little tiny thing that exemplifies this? This made such a difference to me when I heard this question. It was by a faculty member, a white man, and he said to me, architects are in the business of producing buildings. Plausibly, what's most important is that we have the best producers of buildings not that the producers be diverse. Plausibly, professors are in the business of building knowledge. Why not care about having the best producers of knowledge? And if they happen to be white, so be it. So now that's a way that sometimes faculty look at diversity. So let me tell you how I responded, okay? My response was, well, I would argue that we won't know our potential for producing the best buildings the most beautiful and impressive buildings, unless we are inclusive about who has the opportunity to produce these buildings. If we are more inclusive, we may even expand our definitions and understandings of the best, the most beautiful and impressive buildings. Likewise, I would argue that we don't truly know who the best producers of knowledge are if we aren't inclusive about who has the opportunity to produce knowledge. If we're more inclusive, we may even expand our definitions of the best in terms of the production of knowledge. And so I think what happens is you have people, those people who might not be so gung-ho about the diversity saying, well, you know, it, it, we should just have the best person. But what happens is we don't really even look outside of our scope, right? Our regular kind of scope, where our eyes are going to, to locate the best person. We're so fixated on a certain group that we don't look outside of our, our fixation. And so I try to get people to understand how being more diverse is just gonna strengthen everything, right? It's gonna strengthen the experiences that you have as a student, but it's also gonna strengthen the university. It's gonna strengthen, I mean, if I'm to be selfish, it's gonna be strengthening my own experiences because as the university gets stronger, I will have a better experience, you'll have a better experience. It's just getting people to realize that not all the great ideas and all the knowledge comes from white folks. And sometimes that's hard. Like it's really hard sometimes to get, get through to people. It's really hard. As I was listening to Dr. Gasman speak, many things stuck out to me. Like Dr. Gasman, I grew up very low income with parents who had to get their GEDs. It was a significant accomplishment for me to finish and graduate high school, and an even more significant accomplishment for me to make it to college. However, it was also a gigantic struggle to be able to navigate the new environment and feel comfortable when no one looked like me or related to me. I was lucky that my predominantly white university had clubs and programs for people of color. These helped foster community for people from a similar background to mine. I joined a program that has changed the trajectory of my life because I worked with faculty that exposed me to opportunities and careers I otherwise wouldn't have known about because I didn't have the mentorship. For that reason, I enjoyed listening to Dr. Gasman's point of view on diversifying faculty, and I agreed with her, stating how it helps students. Her perspective as faculty of a university herself and years of research and experience on the subject were highly insightful as someone viewing from the outside. That's why Dr. Gasman's statement on holding universities accountable really stuck out to me. As a person of color who goes to a predominantly white institution, 
just easy to feel powerless and alone in these situations. Especially as a student, sometimes it feels like our concerns aren't heard by the faculty. But like Dr. Gassman said, to make change, you need everybody involved. Finding a community that shares the same experiences and desires for change is motivating and creates an excellent foundation for change. We must start the foundation for change now so future generations can have a better experience. Now back to the interview. How can we help support faculty of color in these situations just because they already are a limited amount? So would you say like adding programs in schools would help them give insight and show the, the other faculty, the ones in power in the hiring process, see that this is an improvement and not just a downfall to their schools? One thing I would say is it's a whole variety of things that you really have to do once once faculty of color are hired, you need to ensure that they have mentors who will help them get tenured and through the academic process. You need to listen because you know what we tend to do is I always say that you know we invite people to dinner and then tell them they can't eat. So we need to invite people and then give them a whole bunch of food and have people talking over the dinner conversation and let them stay for the coffee and the dessert and all of that kind of stuff. And we need to really listen to people. So for example, if you were a new faculty member, I wouldn't want to just invite you in and then be like, okay, now be quiet. That's, that's not appropriate. You might be able to tell me, for example, you might notice things about students of color that maybe I need to know in my classes right? You might notice something about the curriculum that maybe I need to change. Maybe you notice things about the institution that create institutional barriers for students of color or faculty of color. I need to listen to those things. So we need to listen to people. We need to make sure that people have ample resources to be successful. And we also have to keep in mind that in order to get ample resources, it, it depends on who you're connected to, right? Unfortunately, merit does not mean like the merit system doesn't work like in this in this equitable way. What happens is if you have more connections, you get more resources. So here's one thing that I always suggest to people. I started doing this a few years ago, whereas whenever I'm invited to a meeting, like where I'm going to meet lots of people, I bring a person of color with me. I bring a woman of color or a person of color with me. And that way they get an invite, they get acclimated, they get to meet people. Another thing that you can do is if you have connections, introduce people of color to those connections. So for example, here's another example. I have a book coming out with Princeton University Press. One of the things that we're working on is to have a panel of editors from Princeton University Press do a webinar that is focused on bringing in more authors of color to their book series, right? That's really, really important to do that so that not everybody who publishes with like, you know, a, a, a really rigorous academic press is white, right? You, you've got to do those kinds of things or making introductions for grants, making introductions to journal editors, Making just making introductions is really important because 
you know, I came from a really low income family. If it were not for mentors and people making introductions for me, my, my mother has an eighth grade education. My father, you know, he graduated with a GED, which is like, you have to go back to get your education, right? You didn't graduate from high school. If it weren't for people, and I will say quite frankly, quite a few people of color helping me, there's no way I would be a professor. There's absolutely no way because people were generous and kind. And I feel like we need to be more generous in the academy as well in, you know, within colleges and universities. We need to realize that, for example, your gain is not my loss, right? We can both gain. It's okay. Like if, if I introduce you to someone, it's okay if you have some success. I'm still going to be okay, right? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be fine. And I think there's like the academy is just set up in this hyper competitive way that makes it seem like if you give anything to anyone else that somehow you're going to lose. And that, that just doesn't, that doesn't work. That's not good for anybody. And you brought up this idea of excellence and how biased that can really be because who determines what is excellence. It seems like embedded within that are the response that you're quoted it's some kind of old colonial ideals as well or civilization Mm -hmm. and and who does the civilizing and haven't we learned that a lot of that indigenous knowledge and all these things that we thought we were throwing out that were just so Mm -hmm. old was actually the right thinking and we kind of brought in I would say some some wrong thinking that we have to correct yeah and it's really hard for people to understand that so by the way that passage that I read that question that I was asked I was asked that by somebody who was 28 years old. That that blew my mind that a 28-year-old asked me that question because now he's a 28-year-old white man and he asked me that question and he could have been asking it just to pose it, but I don't think so. I think he was pretty serious about it. So here, here's another example of something. I, I think that most of us, and by us, I'm, I'm going to say white folks here. I also think that other people can do this from time to time, but... I think that we forget that our way of thinking and our, our knowledge that we've gained isn't necessarily always the best way. It's not absolute. It's not a uncontested truth, right? But we sometimes are taught that. We're literally taught those things. And so sometimes it's a good idea to have checks for yourself where you hold yourself accountable this is one of the reasons why I think it's so important to have a really diverse group of people in your work environment and in your friend environment to hold you accountable and to challenge you. And you should challenge and hold them accountable as well. I agree with you. I think there are so many instances where people assume that ideas come from Western culture and they really don't, and they don't give any credit to other people. And they're really resistant you know, because they think, again, they're going to lose something. When wouldn't it be interesting to kind of take those ideas and look at the the commonalities and the differences and what we can learn across the board from, from all different types of perspectives? I mean, I feel like, like, as someone who travels a lot, I feel so grateful to what I learn when I travel, right? Like just seeing so many things, reading so many diverse perspectives, looking at art, looking at nature, all of those kinds of things, they help us to be more accepting of the fact that we're not the center of the universe and we're not the creators of all knowledge. And 
I, I think that that's really important for us to know. I think that's imp really important for everyone to know that we're not the center of the universe. <laughs> you know, I have to remind people of that all the time. I'm like, you're not the center of the universe. So it's important for us to understand that we're just, you know, part of part of this kind of like greater large society as a whole. I'm very curious about what you're imparting and you and this great group of mentors are imparting at the Rutgers Center for Minority mm -hmm. Serving Institutions. You know, there's a special kind of leadership. What are some of those leadership skills that you're helping prepare directors of minority serving institutions? Sure. So one of the things that one of the programs that we have is called the Minority Serving Institutions Aspiring Leaders Program. And it is a preparatory program for people who want to be presidents of minority serving institutions in the United States. And, you know, there are all kinds of different types, right? So one of the things we try to do, of course, we do kind of, you know, the standard things that you need to know as a leader from crisis management to fundraising to managing faculty relations to again, all kinds of things like that. But we also try to make sure that people really understand the unique environment when you are dealing with large numbers of first-generation college students, low-income college students and students of color, especially within the environment in the United States, and I would argue across the world, where you know, there's a lot of vitriol against people of color. And so you have to be somebody who can create a, a safe place for your students, one that challenges them intellectually, but that gives them the safety to learn. And so that's something that's really important to us. We also think it's incredibly important to stress having a diverse team and, you know, this is something that I personally care about at our center. We have an incredibly diverse team across race and class and gender and country of origin and language and sexuality and, you know, every, every aspect, ability. We have been very purposeful in that. And I, people always ask me, how did you do that? And I'm like, it's not really that difficult because guess what? Society has all of those people. <laughs> they're, they're out there and they want to have jobs. So we try to stress that with the aspiring presidents as well, is that you want your team to be as diverse as possible. And you also want them to have strengths that complement yours and fill in your gaps right? This is a lesson I learned a long time ago from an African-American woman who is a mentor of mine. She said, you know, you're not going to be good at everything. So make sure and hire to your gaps, right? So hire people who can do the things that you might not be as good at. And that's what we tell our leaders too. That's incredibly important. And also, you know, to be able to stand up and and represent on issues that are important nationally, and I would say internationally, and really take your institution and place them in the midst of those conversations to establish the contributions and relevance of your institution. So we really work hard to make sure that the aspiring presidents understand what it's like to be a president, but what it's like to be a president in the very special place of a minority serving institution. It is a delicate balance. I don't find it's quite difficult, but it depends on what, you know, pair of spectacles you're you're putting on when you're looking. Cause we just like did an interview with a trans person mm -hmm. who's also is who is who is white, but is a trans person and was talking about how well gay communities or LGBTQ were like 
you know, segregated historically. And mm -hmm. it was a like a white, it yes, was divided yes, along yes. white supremacist yes, lines, yes, you know? Yes. And so it depends, one minority becomes dominant in another sphere. It seems difficult. And, and then I do think it is a difficult, it's a challenging thing. And only from our own perspective is we have a lot of American people taking part, but they're only about 4% of the population. Uh, so there's yeah, another yeah. dominance. So what you do is so important. And I can imagine it's so, it's important for um, them to be mentored by people who've gone through those same experiences. It, it is. And the other thing I was going to say is that you brought up something so important, right? Which is, is that is that we all have things to learn when it comes to these diversity related issues, right? Or issues of identity. We have so much to learn. Like just because you happen to be, let's say, you know, let's say you're a person of color, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to be accepting of transgender individuals, right? You might have some real hangups or you could be you could be transgender and have some hangups around people of color, you know, all around the spectrum. You can be a woman who doesn't support women, right? You can, you can be a woman who doesn't support trans women. There are, there are all of these kinds of things that we, I think we have to be open to, and we have to be open to learning and also open to making mistakes because sometimes people are going to make mistakes around these issues. And this just goes back to the whole benefit of diversity. So one of the reasons why I feel that I benefit so much from the people that I work with is because they are so diverse in many ways and they are open to talking and, and interacting and making sure that you're up to speed, right? So for example, I bring people up to speed on minority serving institutions all the time or issues of systemic racism, or sometimes issue, I, I had to talk to some people recently about just mansplaining over me all the time in every meeting, right? I've had to talk to people about doing that. I did, I tried to do it in a nice way where I gave some examples and not that you always have to be nice, but I always start there. And and I think it's the same thing if, you know, if you have a whole variety of people who represent complex intersectional identities, you have to sort of help each other out and make sure that you, and I, I think it's, I, I don't think that, for example, if I'm a person of color, I don't think I have an obligation to teach people about, you know, what it's like to be a person of color, but I do think it's the best thing to do for all of us to make sure that we discuss our intersectional identities and be open if you know if we feel comfortable to talking to people so that they can learn because you know you can't you can't drag people through the mud for not understanding let's say transgender issues it, if they've had zero exposure right if they've had i mean yes they can read but it might be the wrong book you know so you have to you have to explain this to people that's one of the things that i really like about ibram kendi and his work on you know anti racism is that he's very open to explaining things he's very open to having a conversation and so for me with the work that I do around systemic racism and faculty hiring or you know minority serving institutions, even if people ask me questions that might be a little you know uninformed or they might be a little awkward, I'm still going to answer the questions. And I have people ask me uninformed, awkward questions all the time that shows they really don't understand. But I'm not going to say to them, "Oh my God," you know what I mean? I'm not going to just be like, 
Oh my God, how could you ask me that? I'm going to say, you know what? I am so excited that you want to know more. Let me explain. And I really, really try to do that. Now, I do understand that for many people of color and people who are in uh, have identities that have been historically marginalized, it can get really frustrating and people can get really tired of it. I understand that I and I acknowledge it, but I also really, really hope that we can listen to each other and explain things to each other. And I would like for us to get to a point where we really appreciate all the identities that we all bring. I really would like us to get to that point. <laughs> and, you know, I'd like people to, that's the only way people learn. Otherwise, how are people going to learn? They're just going to go on making really ignorant comments. And we, we just, we got to get people to learn. I can hundred percent agree on everything that you said, because um, <laughs> I'm a first generation college student and I'm also Latina, being surrounded by white people, they always ask me and my friends questions who come from different religions and ethnic backgrounds. And sometimes it does get tiring. I've heard them complain about not wanting or like just being tired of having to be emotionally open to people and wanting them to learn about them and their background. And they understand that this is definitely a reality that they have to face every day, knowing that some people don't know their background and how their life is and their experience and when it comes to just like to bring it back to your book topic and faculty how can people coming into this new environment deal with all the changes and not being kind of like afraid of having to deal with a lot of questions or just being possibly like not feeling included and and like taking these opportunities because they're afraid of of that rejection. Here's one thing that I think that people can do and I think institutions can do. One is when you go into an institution, try to seek out people who can be supports for you, okay? I think most people should have like a board of mentors, okay? Not just one mentor, but try to get a variety of mentors, some on the outside and some on the inside. And I think that they should be very diverse in terms of all kinds of different ways, right? Age and gender and race and et cetera, et cetera. I think people should, your mentors should be pretty diverse. I'm very lucky because I have mentors from all different backgrounds and, and, and some of them are older than me and some of them are younger than me because they can mentor me on things that older folks might not know, right? And so I, and I'm open to learning. So one thing I would say is try to find people who you feel like you can have a relationship with Sometimes that might mean you have to go over to like the student affairs area of a university and find some folks over there. Sometimes it might mean going to cultural centers. Sometimes it might mean going outside of your department to another school and and joining some initiatives. That's what I did. Like, you know, I will say that the folks in Africana studies were the most welcoming to me in throughout my, my especially my early career, but even now, I mean, and, and I've been very, very lucky because some folks ended up being like my closest, like non-work friends too, right? Which is really nice. So you got to kind of find your people. So, but a university can also help you with that in that one of the, the, one of the best strategies for hiring a diverse faculty is to hire in clusters. And it's great if a university will, let's say, hire five or 10 faculty of color at the same time and then have a program for them 
because they end up having a support network that's already in place. And that can be really, really advantageous. So that's a strategy. And then the other thing is you really do have to be assertive and go and kind of find your people. You know, I, I would say that for me, I, I like to get involved in things that have to do with my interests. And usually you can find some people that way, right? I definitely don't stay just in my school as a faculty member. I like to, I like to engage with people at the university overall. And I have found uh, that that is really supportive. I also think it's important to have supports at other universities for with people in roles that are similar to yours. And having a support network is really important. Now, one other thing I'm going to say, and um, this may be surprising, but I also think, I think everybody should have this, but I also think that faculty should use their benefits and go to see a mental health counselor on a regular basis. I think being a faculty member is very stressful. It can be very emotional. I see a mental health counselor every two weeks. It's the best thing that I can do for myself. You know why? Because every day I am spending time helping other people. And it's really nice to have an hour where someone's listening to me and helping me. It's really nice. And I recommend that to so many people because they tell me how stressed they are. You know, all of the things, especially folks of color are going through, I, especially with society overall, but also in their own jobs. I think seeing a mental health counselor is a really important thing. It's like a gift you can give yourself. Yeah, that's well, I, you know, that's interesting because we didn't get that, but that's such sound advice, you know, so in terms of like, yeah, closing advice as you think about the future education, you know, the progress we've made, the challenges we still face, the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, you know, what are some important life lessons uh, for you? What would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Well, one thing that I would love to just start off with like for colleges and universities, I wish that people would realize that they don't have to hold so tightly to the systems that have been in place that you, you know, just because something's been a policy doesn't mean it has to be a policy. Just because something's been a rule doesn't mean it has to be a rule. And if that policy or rule is hurting people of color, women, LGBTQ population, et cetera, you know, maybe international students, dismantle that policy and start over with input from the people that the policy has an impact on. So that's something I think is really important. It's okay to let some of these things go. We don't have to keep doing them, right? And then for younger folks, I think that it is important. I mean, I'd say the same thing that I tell everybody, and that is, I usually say to people every day, you know, make sure and do something good for yourself today because life is short. People, you know, my mom is 91 years old and she lives every day with joy. She's so joyful. And part of it is she's like, I don't know when my last day is coming, right? She's like, I don't know, it could be today. And part of what I tell people is, yes, there are really serious things in the world, but make sure you've got one life. Make sure you live it in a beautiful way, make sure you fight for what you want in life, make sure you do some good things for yourself and for others. And it took me a long time to realize that life is about living for too long. I don't think I did that. That's the best advice I can give people is just 
do something good for yourself. Even if you're in the academy and it's beating you down, go out and do something good for yourself, you know, whatever that might be. You know, for me, it's a, it's a walk in the sunshine and a, maybe a, a skim latte. <laughs> Just do something good for yourself. So. You're a great role model. If you do something good for yourself and you see that, as you say, this joyous living, it has a, a ripple effect. So I can't imagine how many lives you've touched. Thank you, Dr. Mary Beth Gassman and Rutgers Center for Minority Serving Institutions for your invaluable contribution and all you do to help advance social justice and create Thank a you. more even playing field for the marginalized in our society so that we can create a better tomorrow. Thank you for helping make the world a better place for future generations and adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you both so much. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Diana Gonzalez. Digital Media Coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Winter Time was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.